You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, premium episode number 9. This episode begins our two-part look at the development of the tank during the war. In these episodes, you can expect a lot of talk about development, engineering, design, and evaluation of performance, but not a whole lot about what the tanks actually did on the battlefield. This is because that last bit will be covered in the main episodes over the next two years or so. What I wanted to do here was dig a bit deeper into the development of the tank due to its amazing place as pretty much the land-based military platform of the last century. Looking at current military trends and conflicts happening around the globe right now, this is probably also not going to change soon, so you may be looking at a century and a half or more of tank-led dominance on the battlefield. It would all begin during the First World War, and its first appearance would be on the battlefield of the Somme in September 1916. So actually, I'm actually recording this on September 15th, which just so happens to be the 100th anniversary, precisely, of the appearance of the tank on the battlefield, although you probably aren't listening to it on September the 15th, so I'm talking to you from the past. This actually lines up really well with our main episodes, almost like I planned it that way, because we're talking about the Somme uh, over there in the mainline episode, so this is a good uh, sort of side story. After its debut in 1916, the tank would have a continually growing and evolving role on the battlefield, and by the end of the war, the British, French, and Americans would field over 4,000 of the machines. This journey was not easy, though, and it required a huge amount of thought, experimentation, and work away from the battlefield, as teams of designers and engineers in each country tried to create a military tool almost out of thin air, sort of like what was happening with airplanes during the war as well. We will spend almost this entire episode with those designers and engineers, only briefly touching on the tank's first appearance on the battlefield. We will continue our story next episode, where we will discuss how the tank sort of evolved after its first appearance, all the way up until the end of the war. The tank, or what would come to be called the tank after several name changes, was not the first armored fighting vehicle to make a place for itself on the First World War battlefield. 
They were both armored and unarmored cars used in the fighting from almost the very start of the war. In fact, since the invention of the internal combustion engine, there had been at least some members of the militaries around Europe who sought to find a way to use them in warfare. Now, this took some doing for two different reasons. The first was simply that military leadership is generally pretty cautious and concerned about change. The motor vehicle was a very new thing, and unlike something like the machine gun, it did not have an obvious like-this-but-better counterpart like a machine gun has to the rifle. The second reason, and really the most important reason, was that most military leaders before 1914 thought that the next war would be a war of movement, not something that would bog down and have gains measured in yards. In these imagined mobile battlefields, the slow speed and low endurance of armored vehicles was just not something that they thought would be worth the investment. This did not prevent at least a few vehicles from making their way into military circles before 1914, though. And what would become the first armored fighting car of the war got its start in 1912 with E.L. Mole, who was an Australian, when he submitted a design. This design would feature armor plating on a vehicle, but in 1914, just normal vehicles would make the largest impact on the battlefield. They made their triumphant debut during the race to the sea, or I guess before the race to the sea started, when there was just, when there was just that giant open area to the north of the armies in the field. Here, the British would use vehicles for scouting and intelligence gathering platforms. There were also more utilitarian motor vehicles used behind the front, especially as the war began to settle down. These were closer to farm tractors than anything else, and they would haul artillery and other material behind the front. Then there was also, of course, trucks and things used to haul men and material as well. The one area that motor vehicles found it difficult to find their place on was the shell hole covered in trench-filled battlefields after 1914. The search for something that would not be afraid of the battlefield began before the end of the first year of the war, when Lieutenant Colonel Maurice Hankey wrote what would be called the Boxing Day Memorandum. In this document, he set out what he saw as the problems with the current situation at the front, and advised the British War Council what they should create, that they should create a committee with the goal of coming up with a mechanical solution to the problems of breaking through the German defenses. This was a big step because at the time, there was generally not large committees, especially civilian ones, that would research, develop, test, and produce new weapon systems. It was more of an ad hoc sort of thing. The idea of such a committee did not get a lot of support from the War Council when it was first introduced, especially from the army. Winston Churchill, though, really latched on to the idea, and he would use his position at the Admiralty to really push the idea of the tank forward. And this is why, you know, um, the early tanks were called landships and, and things like that. They came from a Admiralty lineage. He was extremely critical of the army for not taking the lead itself, and would write to Asquith about it on January 2nd, 1915. Quote, I entirely agree with Colonel Hankey's remarks on the subject of special mechanical devices for taking trenches. It is extraordinary that the Army in the field and the War Office should have allowed nearly three months of trench warfare to progress without addressing their minds to its special problems. The question to be solved is not therefore the long attack over carefully prepared glaciers of former times but the actual getting across of a hundred or two hundred yards of open space and wire entanglements. All this was apparent more than two months ago, but no steps have been taken and no preparations made. End quote. 
Because of this committee and other efforts aimed at creating better haulers for logistical purposes, a few different groups in the British government began sort of just casting about for designs on how armored cars and other vehicles could be improved to be used on the battlefield. This started a cascade of suggestions that would roll around the British government for the rest of the war. This included crazy ideas like cars with wire-cutting mowers on the front, or with 20-foot-wide rollers designed to mash the wire down. All of these were massive and, frankly, ridiculous, but it would feed enough of the ideas to really get things going once they were scaled down. Throughout all of this, it would be the Royal Navy, with the prodding of Churchill, that would be the biggest proponent of trying to create an armored vehicle. Before we move on, and never discuss them again, just a bit about what happened to the armored cars. After the war settled down, it was found that their armor, generally about 4 millimeters thick, give or take, was just not enough to be used on the battlefield. This combined with the other problems that the cars had in moving across the battlefield meant they had be taken off of the Western Front and moved to other theaters. This included the Eastern Front, the Middle East, and Gallipoli. The first two of those would prove to be a pretty decent environment for their use, and they would prove their value. Gallipoli, maybe not so much, but it was Gallipoli, so nothing really went the British's way, or even close to how they hoped. The really revolutionary move that led to the tank and made the entire concept possible was the concept of using tracks. This was not a completely new concept. In fact, it had been used in farming equipment for years before 1914. However, it was not initially considered for military vehicles. It would not have been, probably, if they were not so heavily used by the hauling tractors behind the front. The idea of using them on a fighting vehicle seems to belong to Robert McAfee, a Scottish-Canadian engineer. He would begin to advocate for the use of tracks, but this was not the only idea that was floating around. He had to contend with other ones. One of the more consistent ones would be an idea of using massive rollers, but they had to be large enough to not get stuck in trenches and shell holes, so this led to some truly massive designs going up on drawing boards. This included an early idea where the vehicle would have three of these massive rollers and a 12-inch naval gun mounted on it. It would be powered by banks of submarine diesels and would weigh a whopping 800 ton. This weight was thought to be just completely preposterous, so the designers, you know, really went back and they really started cutting it down to just the bare essentials, and they came up with a 300-ton vehicle with wheels that were only 40 feet in diameter. It would be 46 feet high, 100 feet long, 80 feet wide. No big deal. Now, obviously, we know today that this machine is completely impossible to build. Like, we might be able to do it now, but nobody would be silly enough to try. But these were the heady days of big ideas, with no real history of this type of vehicle that would constrain these ideas or sort of show what was possible. Also, the Navy was playing a big role in all of these conversations, and while the vehicle I just described was a massive land vehicle, it would barely register on the naval scale. So this is where one root of the designs comes from, really big vehicles, really massive projects. However, the solution would come from another realm entirely, and it would all be rooted in the lowly farm tractor. This path of development started at just trying to retrofit Holt Caterpillar tractors to work on the battlefield, and to this end several were purchased and shipped from the United States. 
As early as February 1915, these machines were being put to the test to evaluate them for their battlefield utility. They were found to be good at some things, like crossing wire obstacles, but were woefully deficient at really important tasks, like, you know, crossing trenches or getting out of shell holes. This was really expected, given the fact that they were farm tractors, designed for the farm and their nice flat fields and maybe slightly bumpy roads. This meant that one of the biggest problems was simply the size of the tracks, which were generally too small to handle the rough terrain and the increased weight the armor plating added. All of these problems combined to result in the military evaluators being relatively unimpressed with what they saw in the initial trials. This made the army even less interested in continuing development, but Churchill was still game. To continue the development, the Landship Committee was created by the Admiralty, and it would continue to push the development forward. And this is where things really start to get serious, and in my opinion, where the real work of making the tank began. Gone were the heady days of ridiculous ideas. These men were here to build something. It was also at this point that a sort of clear iterative design process that was required to get something actually on the battlefield got started. There were many men on this committee, but it was led by Tennyson Dancourt and Colonel Wilfred Dumble and Captain Tommy Hetherington. And they were all part of this initial crew, but others would join shortly thereafter. This would include Colonel Crompton, who was seen as an expert on heavy tracked propulsion systems. A few months later, they would bring in Lieutenant Walter Wilson and Lieutenant Albert Stern, the last of which would be installed as secretary of the committee to free up the other members from their administrative duties. Stern would end up being sort of the leader of the committee eventually, and reorganizing it to be more efficient. The committee would begin with a simple question, whether they should use wheels or tracks. And to test this, they built two models. They also began to determine exactly how much armor they would need, which would then drive the weight, size, power, and armament discussions. You can see why I say that this is where the design stuff began. They were asking these simple questions. At this point in time, armor was something of an unknown, because Large-caliber rifles were a pretty big concern for these vehicles, and the Germans had found that if they reversed the normal rifle bullet so that the lead filling of the bullet hit the armor plate first, it would allow for greater levels of penetration. I'm not positive on how this works, but I think it's similar to current shaped charge systems in tank shells, where it would create a really hot bit of metal that would punch through the armor. This was a concern for lightly armored cars, and one of the reasons they had to be taken off the battlefield, and it was important that any tank not have this problem, or at least be able to withstand normal-sized rifle bullets. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, 
over into the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. And so throughout the spring and summer of 1915, this committee continued to work on some very fundamental questions of designing these new vehicles. A very good portion of this work went into track design. It is somewhat weird to think about the fact today, but designing tracks was one of the hardest and most demanding parts of the entire tank design. Now, tracks had existed beforehand, but they were putting them under completely unheard of strain. It required something that was flexible, strong, but not brittle or easily breakable. And it had to have pretty high tolerances on the battlefield where there'd be a lot of unevenness. It would be Wilson and Tritton working the most in this area. And it would be Wilson who came up with the idea that would lead to the really iconic look of the British World War I tanks. His idea was to run the tracks all the way around the hull of the vehicle, with the hull steeply shaped and angled at the front. This would allow the tank to easily climb the vehicles or obstacles, and this would then make it diff- but it would then make it difficult to mount weapons on top. They would instead put the weapons on the sides of the tanks, between the upper and lower runs of the tracks. This was a huge deal, and it would be the design that would be used by the British for most of the tanks for the entire war, and I think this is the, this is the tank that everybody remembers from the First World War. I, I believe it was used in Indiana Jones. While Wilson was determining how to put the put these tracks on the tank, Tritton would be developing precisely how to make them. He would come up with the design that involved riveting armor plates as shoes that were then given a lip to prevent them from riding off the tank. These would then be put on a series of rollers that were all spring-loaded, which would keep the tracks nice and tight. This would prove to be a very reliable design and would be used throughout the entire war. While all of these engineering discussions were being held, the army was also starting to get involved. And it was at this point, after some of the most fundamental questions were being sorted out, that the army would produce its first set of concrete requirements for what they wanted in these fighting machines. Now before this, there had been some discussions of having just large armored troop carriers, not really fighting vehicles, strictly transport. And this is what is referred to in the following quote. The army would actually go back and forth on this area several times, constantly conflicted on whether they wanted machines that could fight or strictly big metal boxes with an engine that could transport a bunch of men into the enemy's lines, where they would then get out and start fighting, I guess. So here's a hefty quote from the specification that was issued by the army. Quote, secret, Caterpillar machine gun destroyer. Suggested conditions to be adhered to in design if possible. These are tentative and subject to modification. Speed. Top speed on flat, not less than 4 miles per hour. Bottom speed for climbing, 2 miles an hour. Steering. To be capable of being tuned, turned 90 degrees on top speed on the flat. Reversing. To travel backwards or forwards, equally fast. Climbing. To be capable of crossing backwards or forwards, an earth parapet 5 feet thick and 5 feet high. Bridging. 
all gaps up to 5 feet in width to be bridged directly without dipping into them, all gaps above 5 feet in width to be climbed up to a depth of 5 feet with vertical earth sides, radius of action to carry petrol and water for 20 miles, capacity, crew and armament, to carry 10 men, 2 machine guns, 1 light quick-firing gun. For each pair of machines, 6 2-pounders, 4 maxims, and 25 men are considered better by the general staff, if possible. End quote. These requirements would result in a model that would be called Mother. The committee would work in the William and Foster and Company of Lincoln factory to manufacture the new vehicle, and by January 7, 1916, they had built the first of their test units. This unit was also the first to have a two-pound gun, which was mounted on both sides. This was the uh, quick-firing gun uh, that I mentioned. When the gun was fired, there was even a 50-pound bet by the designers on whether or not the entire vehicle would collapse. When this did not happen, and in fact did not happen after several consecutive firings, I'm sure everybody breathed a sigh of relief, and some money probably changed hands. This was during the second week of January 1916, and it would be just a few weeks later that the first official test demonstration would be made for members of the military and governmental leadership. These tests would take place on February 2nd on Lord Salisbury's private golf course. Yes, he had a private golf course. Yes, he graciously volunteered it for the trials. This presented the designers with a problem. Obviously, they were not doing their work, on the golf course all the time, so they had to transport the tanks by rail. To maintain the required secrecy, this meant covering them and then doing everything at night, including the loading and unloading. The tanks also had to be disassembled because they were too wide to fit on the railway cars. So after all of this work was done, thankfully the tanks were transported without incident. And there were two. One, the mother tank, which is what would become the Mark I, and then Little Willie, which was an older design with the old style of small tracks. Some last-minute adjustments were made on January 29th, and then the trial started a few days later. The trial went off well, unlike in previous tests, pretty much without a hitch, and it was considered a huge success. Everybody who saw the demonstration was pleased with the ability of the machine to handle obstacles put in front of it and to deal with large amounts of barbed wire. There were concerns about its ability to handle artillery fire due to its lack of speed and maneuverability, and these would be concerns about tanks for the rest of the war. But the rewards of having these fighting vehicles at the front was deemed to be too great when compared to with the concerns about their weaknesses. With both the military and civilian leadership teams now suitably impressed and on board, the question became how many to make and how to make them. When Haig's representatives at the demonstration got back to headquarters, they decided that they wanted maybe 30 or 40 machines. They settled on this number not just because of how much they wanted, but because that was really the maximum that they could make without having an effect on other areas of wartime production. However, when Lloyd George and the War Office saw the order for 40, they decided that it was not nearly enough and upped the order to 150. One thing to keep in mind is that the manufacturing resources of the United Kingdom were pretty tapped at this point in producing all of the various items to continue the war. This included a lot of demand for steel and munitions, factories, and skilled workers, all of which would be required to make these tanks. So what precisely would they be creating? 
Well, the Mark I tank was 28 tons, 25 feet long, 8 feet high, and 14 feet wide. There were also two versions, a male and a female. The male version had two six-pounder guns, along with several machine guns. And the female version replaced those two six-pounders with four extra machine guns. Both would be equipped with between 6mm and 12mm of armor plating. All of this size and weight would be pushed forward by a 105 horsepower engine to somewhere around 3.5 miles per hour. For those who don't have a good head idea of 105 horsepower, well, it's about what my Toyota Prius has in it, and it certainly weighs far less than 28 ton. Construction problems for these mammoth machines quickly began to develop. The initial hope was that 150 would be ready for deployment by August 1st, but by June, it was determined that maybe 50 could be ready by then. Maybe. One decision made early on, even with the concerns about being able to make enough of them, was that the United States would not be used in the manufacturing process. This was because there were concerns that if the United States was used, even just to build the parts, information about the machine would find its way into German hands. As the production delays continued, it was clear that the tanks would not be ready for the opening attack on the Somme. This did not end up robbing the tank of their chance because the Somme just kept dragging on, and it was decided that they would be used during the renewed push in September. You know, on like September the 15th, or today. Even though the tanks made it to the front, it did not solve all of the production problems though, because it was found that that when they got there, that there was a serious shortage of spare parts. All of the production capacity was being used to create more tanks, and none had been held back for parts. This was a problem that would not be rectified until well into 1917, because the hardest hit sort of areas that didn't have spare parts were the really important parts that were already the limiting agent on trying to meet the required production numbers. But the tanks would make it to the battlefield, if a bit too slowly. But the training for their eventual crews had to begin well before the machines started to arrive at the front. In an effort to keep the tanks secret, the men who were asked to volunteer for this new job were not told what precisely they were volunteering for. This made it a challenge to attract enough men, but it was eventually done. But because they didn't have vehicles, when the training began, they instead had to focus strictly on gunnery practice with machine guns and, and the quick-firing cannon. And when the tanks did start showing up, the crews, many of which had never seen the machines before, were in for quite a surprise. Here is Richard Haig describing his experience. Quote, We looked around the little chamber with eager curiosity. Our first thought was that seven men and an officer could never do any work in such a confined space. Eight of us were at present jammed in here, but we are standing still. When it came to going into action and moving around inside the tank, it would be impossible. There was no room even to pass one another, so we thought. In front are two stiff seats, one for the officer and one for the driver. Two narrow slits serve as portholes through which we looked ahead. In front of the officer is a map board and gun mounting. Down the middle of the tank is the powerful petrol engine, part of it covered with a hood, and along each side a narrow passage along which a man can slide from the officer's and driver's seat back to the mechanism in the rear. There are four gun turrets to each side, and also a place for a gunner in the rear. End quote. Being inside the tank was very uncomfortable. 
There was no suspension, so the men were just bounced around everywhere. While they were, and while that was happening, they were trying not to touch any of the very hot metal or exhaust surfaces. The danger of this was particularly bad for all of the gunners, who were positioned with only inches between their bodies and the hot engines. On top of this, if the exhaust was damaged, there was a good chance that the crew would asphyxiate from all the gas that would spew into the crew compartment. Inside the tank, it was also extremely noisy, making any kind of verbal communication impossible. This meant that the entire crew had to communicate entirely by hand signals. The final problem with being inside the tank was more of a discomfort. It was really hot in these things, especially on really hot summer days. And naturally, the men would have liked to have worn less clothing, but this was just not possible. Because of the risk of hitting a hard metal surface, the men had to wear leather at all times, And then when going into battle, they also had to wear these wicked-looking leather helmets with a mask of chainmail. This was due to the fact that when the enemy bullets hit the outside of the tank, they had a tendency to cause molten metal bits to fly around inside, and without the protection of the masks, the men could have been instantly killed by one of these fragments. The saving grace for the tank was that while the crews were uncomfortable, they were at least sort of safe. As long as the tank did not catch fire, there there was even a reasonably good chance of surviving a hit that would put the tank completely out of action. While the men were getting used to all of these problems, there was also lengthy discussions back at headquarters about how exactly the tanks should be used. While in the next few years tank tactics would get much more complex, in the beginning they were quite simple. The tanks would move forward in pairs or groups of three. They would pretty much just drive straight through the enemy lines to a maximum range of about 3 miles. During during that time, the early tanks would go through 2 gallons of diesel and half a gallon of lubricant oil for every mile traveled, so 3 miles is actually a reasonable distance. The final question, and ironically, the one that would go through the most change before September, was what these new units should be called, these new armored units. Everybody wanted to be at least a little deceptive, and so a whole list of names were used to name the new units. In March, they were called the Armor Car Section of the Motor Machine Gun Service. This must have been too descriptive, because at the end of March, it was renamed to the Motor Machine Gun Corps S Detachment. That's S Detachment, which was again apparently too good of a name. So they eventually settled on Heavy Section Machine Gun Corps, which was about as nondescriptive as you can get. This would be the name that would be used when they went into battle in September, although it would change again in November when it became the Heavy Branch Machine Gun Corps. Regardless of what it was called, it was going into battle, under the command of Colonel Swinton. I do not know if I've ever seen a single historian who thinks that the tanks should have been used in the September attack on the Somme. If anybody has one, uh, please, please let me know. This was because they were not going to be available in the numbers that were required to have a huge impact. In fact, due to the mechanical unreliability of the new platform, there would be just 18 of them that would see action, even though 49 were assigned to the attack and 32 of them at least made it to the start line. For the attack, the plan was to spread them out along the front, with the groups of tanks working forward to hit the German strong points. Part of this was because coordination between tanks was very difficult, so trying to get and stay in larger groups would have been a serious challenge. All they had was like flags and stuff to communicate. 
And so the tanks were sent forward during the night, and they were given massive amounts of stuff inside to keep the crew supplied for the upcoming attack. With 30 tins of food, 16 loaves of bread, a bunch of cheese, tea, sugar, milk, and then large amounts of engine and lubricant oil for the tank itself, and finally 33,000 rounds of ammunition. That much stuff was not really a problem. I mean, the tanks were 28 tons themselves. I just thought it was interesting, so I thought I would throw it out there. During the night before the attack, when the tanks were sent forward, there were bouts of artillery fire and planes flying overhead to mask the noise of their engines. And when the time came, the first tank to go forward was D-1, under the command of Captain Mortimer. His sights were set on a German pocket in front of Devil Wood. This would be the first instance of a tank going into battle, and it was a momentous occasion. William Divill was near the front when D-1 and then later other tanks went forward. Quote, as the tanks travel over the front trench, the troops rub their eyes in wonder at their, their strange cube impressionist coats of many colors. The deck of the tank rolls and pitches like a torpedo boat in a storm. End quote. On the German side, the sight was a bit more concerning. They had never seen such a vehicle, and you can only imagine how confused and scared they were when it started rumbling towards them. There was just simply no countermeasures or tactics developed to, to deal with him at this point. And while it was rare for the Germans to break completely, they quickly began to lose ground. The greatest result of the attack was the tanks that assaulted the village of Fleurs. Here they were able to move forward almost a mile, and by 9am they were right up to the village. While the results all along the front of the line, or at least where the tanks were able to go forward, were okay, it was very difficult to capitalize on them. And this is where the concerns from historians and even many contemporary observers come in. If the British would have waited for the tanks to be in larger numbers and maybe to be better performing, they really could have made a huge impact. As it was, the tanks were both too weak in number and reliability to produce a huge victory like what the British really needed and what the British really wanted after so much time and energy had been spent on them. However, it would have been many months, if not another year, before the tanks could have been put onto the front in numbers to really facilitate what they wanted, and the experiences gained in September 1916 would go a long way to pushing tank advances for further, faster, and in a better direction than probably would have been happening otherwise. And again, I'll go into a lot more detail about this attack in the normal episodes. But that is where we will take up the story next episode, after the attack of September 1916, by looking at their reactions to the first use and what would change as they tried to continue to improve both the number of the tanks and what they actually were, which would lead to the Mark II, the Mark III, the Mark IV. Also, if you have any questions about tanks or other vehicles, please let me know. I'll be glad to answer them next premium episode, which should be around about the middle of October. Thank you for listening, and thank you again for your support.